0: Good morning, everyone. It seems like it's, it's kind of been a while since... Has it been a while, Cliffy? <laughs> it's been a while since I've had the joy of sharing God's Word with you. Um, yeah, I think I'm one of those who would actually like to have been riding the august this morning. Um, it's such a beautiful day to be outside, but it's also a beautiful day to be inside... Meditating on God's Word. So as you know, Craig is away. And so this morning we are actually going to be continuing in our series called Walking as Jesus Walked. And so over the last few weeks, if you've been able to track with us through this series, we have considered some theological truths. And for some of us, it may have proven to be a little bit Uh, complex or challenging to get our minds around some of these theological truths. And we've considered theological truths about the person of Jesus, how how God decides to present these theological truths to us, and most importantly, how they impact on us today. And by extension, then, how we as believers and followers of Jesus Christ or to live out our lives. And so according to the weeks that we have um, passed through, some of the, the headings in the readings that have been available on the church website have been some like this. The, week one was that Jesus pioneered the life we are meant to live. Week two, and underneath these were subheadings with even um, greater detail. Week three was God... We looked at His love for us. Week 4, we looked at how the Father accepts a substitute who is Jesus. Week 5, we considered how we fight the battle. Week 6, how we could open our hearts to emotion. Now this morning, I would like for us to consider the context of some of some of these truths from a different perspective, however. And in doing so, I want us to look to go back to what our very first readings were for week one. And this was week one, day one. And that reading um, started out with a scripture in 1 John chapter 2. And it said, this is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live. And the Greek word there is, which literally means walk around like, as Jesus did. And then secondly, a disciple is not above his teacher, but each one, when fully trained, will be like the teacher. As disciples of Jesus, we exist to reproduce the life of Jesus. Jesus not only died the death that we were meant to die, he lived the life that we are meant to live. Most of us who believe Get the, get the first bit about his death, although we are hopefully going deeper into the meaning and power of the cross all the time. However, we are not certain of what the life that Jesus lived means. From baptism to Gethsemane, not least because so much about Jesus is obviously unique in so many remarkable ways. Now this morning we know that the life that Jesus lived was was unique. But I do believe that sometimes when we think about being like Jesus, or as First John says there, walking around like he did, when we think about that, we simply give up because we think to ourselves that Jesus is God. And so there is no way that I could possibly be like him. Now that thought is true in some sense because Jesus is the Son of God, but it is also in some sense short of the truth in another sense because Jesus also is fully human. And this morning I want us to consider the part of Jesus that is fully human. And so the question that I want us to consider this morning is, what did Jesus in His humanness Contribute to the reality of being fully human and fully divine. What did Jesus, the one who had a human birth, who grew up as a human child, who developed as a normal human being like we do, the one who was tempted, the one who experienced thirst and hunger and who became tired The one who showed emotions to us and the one who died, what did he have to do? And I'd like for us to meditate on some of this this morning in the hope that it may help us to understand some of those theological truths in a deeper sense. The father decided to send Jesus to a place called Galilee. Now, Galilee is an area that is situated around a freshwater lake called the Sea of Galilee. And the surrounding area is a fairly fertile area of low hills that is called the Galilee. Now, the Galileans were people who actually were the first to invent discipleship. Discipleship was not practiced in Judea very widely, it was not practiced neither in the diaspora, in in places like Egypt or Babylon, at least not early on, it was later on, but it appears as though discipleship was a Galilean concept. Now this is interesting as it then becomes evident to us that God wanted to use this, this discipleship model. And so rather than incarnating himself anywhere else, he chose this place, Galilee. Now, Jesus himself, his hometown, was the rural place called Capernaum, which was a town of around 2,000 people, a relatively small town. Yet in Jewish history and in Jewish tradition, which is also where I'm getting most of my information from, Capernaum became a highly revered center of learning for Jewish teaching and discipleship. And with many great rabbis practicing their teaching and finding their disciples in the town around and in Capernaum. Now in Galilee during biblical times, you went to school as a child. And Jesus also, as a young boy, went to school. And the first elementary level at the school that they had is called Beit Sefir. Now, Beit Sefir, the word literally means house of the book. And so was a place of reading and writing. The idea of Beit Sefir is actually something that originates all the way back to the prophet Ezra, and his great assembly who provided a public school in Jerusalem to secure the education of fatherless boys. And this idea then continued to grow throughout the history of Israel. Now in Galilee, boys and girls went from about ages 5 to 12. But we shouldn't interpret that too rigidly, because there wasn't a law about it in the way that we have the laws today. But that is how it was practiced. The boys in particular learned to read and write Torah specifically. The girls had a slightly different curriculum in that they studied part of Torah, but they added Psalms and Proverbs to Leviticus and Deuteronomy instead of Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers that the boys had to learn at Beit Sefir. Now the goal of this learning system that the Jews had set up was to create an environment in which boys and girls would memorize those parts of Scripture with an emphasis on the boys and the boys knowing the Torah by memory by the age 12. Now, for me, I find this extremely impressive. I personally struggle to to memorize um, portions of Scripture. And for a 12-year-old boy, when I think about my 12-year-old son, I remember it was quite a feat just for me to get him to remember to take his lunchbox out of his bag after school, let alone memorizing portions of Scripture. So imagine having to Memorize the book of Leviticus or the book of Deuteronomy. I get a bit of a headache. <laughs> now you could tell when a boy had learnt the Torah by memory and would be able to recite sections and portions of the scripture because this young boy would be allowed to participate in the festival of Passover. Children went to the festival of Passover, but they weren't allowed to join in it. Only young boys, 12 years old, who passed the grade of being able to memorize Torah, were allowed to participate in Passover. So this happened at the age of 12. And so this 12-year-old boy, knowing Torah, could stand before God in his own faith. And in his own knowledge, not the faith and the knowledge of his parents. And this 12-year-old boy would be allowed to kill the lamb on behalf of his family. How old was Jesus at his first Passover? Luke actually records it for us in Luke chapter 2, verses 41 to 47. Luke records... Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Jesus, the boy, was following the system. And so Jesus had learnt the Torah by memory. Now, I know that we could say that Jesus is God, he wrote the book, and he would obviously then know it by memory, and that is true, but I also want us to believe this morning that Jesus came to earth to be one of us, and he chose to live a human existence that included him having to learn. Jesus needed to learn things. And so as a child, Jesus must have spent hundreds and hundreds of hours memorizing Scripture because that's what good Jews did. Now most children were finished with school at the age of 12. Age 12 was really a watershed moment in the life of a child in the Galilee during biblical times. Girls, as soon as they had their first menstrual cycle, their family would make an announcement to the community that their daughter was old enough to marry, and within about a year or so traditionally, she would marry. And so girls were finished with their education at this point, which is roughly the age of 12. Most boys, however, didn't have the determination or perhaps we should say the gifts from God to do even the memorization of the Torah and so very few of them moved on to the next level, to the next stage. But a few of them did. Now these boys who showed promise, who were good learners, went to the second level. And this second level is called Beit Midrash, which when literally translated means house of learning. And this, at this stage, of course, would only be boys because girls, most of them would have married and moved on from that stage. Now, in Jewish culture, boys who were gifted enough academically, who were good learners would continue on for about three or four years. Their study now, which is called Beit Midrash, concerned now not only memorizing Torah and going into it in greater detail, but it expanded to include what is called Tanakh. The Hebrew Bible is organized into three sections. The Torah or teaching, which is also called the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. And then there's the Naveim, or the prophets. And then there's the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And the combination of these three sections is called the Tanakh. Now those there that we see there, that the Jews consider to be their Bible, their scriptures, are books that we also have in our Old Testament. Now, at the end of this next level of learning called Beit Midrash, mostly by about the age of 15, most boys would be done with education. And then they would go off and they would become fishermen, or potters, or carpenters, and whatever other trades and skills were found in the Galilee But a few of them, only a handful of them, the ones who showed real potential and were really good learners, they would move on to the next level, which was called Beit Talmud, which literally translated means house of interpretation. And then these young men, starting at age 15, would then study more than just memorization but now they would move on to interpretation. And they would do this until age 30. And if at age 30 they hadn't been able to memorize all of the Tanakh, and they didn't show any of those teaching skills that they would need to carry on and perhaps become a great rabbi, they too would then go off and take up an occupation or his skill in the Galilee. This was then another watershed moment within the the realm of education and learning and development of a person in the Galilee. Note, at what age did Jesus begin his teaching ministry? Age 30. And so we see that Jesus, the man, was following the rabbinic model and tradition of his culture at that time. Jesus didn't wake up one morning and have all the answers. No, there was study and there was devotion and there was commitment involved in his life. And now at this point is where things get interesting. A young man from age 15 would have gone through this education system, so to speak. And here at the age of 15, having been singled out as being a good learner, a gifted communicator, and someone who knows Tanakh, he would begin, this 15-year-old young man, would look around and he would ask himself, now what rabbi would I like to be like? which rabbi do I want to be like? Because this 15-year-old young man now needs to decide on a rabbi who would disciple him. And so discipleship is only introduced at this stage. And so if we consider those stages, I think in our context, it's helpful to think of it as something like primary school, high school, and then university, even though it has more to it than just that. Now for this young man, and, and as, we under, as we need to understand that there is a difference between a rabbi and a teacher. Torah teachers didn't have disciples. Priests didn't have disciples. Only rabbis had disciples. And disciples or young men would only want to follow The great teachers, the great rabbis, who knew the scriptures intimately, who were master teachers and master communicators. But there was one other thing, one more thing, besides those details, besides being a good communicator or master teacher, there was one thing that set rabbis apart from any other teacher. Only rabbis had what the Jews called smicha. The Hebrew term smicha is based on the verse in Numbers 27 and verses 23, which reads, And he laid his hands upon him and gave him a charge, as the Lord spoke by the hands of Moses. Smicha, this concept of smicha, can be described as authority that has been passed on by the laying on of hands all the way from Moses, from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. And in this verse, in Numbers chapter 27 and verse 23, Moses, at the command of God, lays his hands on his disciple Joshua so that Joshua would be able to to function in Moses' place as the spiritual leader. Now, in biblical times, only scholars who had had hands laid on them by a rabbi who had this authority called smicha, in the chain reaching all the way back to Joshua, could act as judges and authority in the land of Israel. And so, coming back to this young man, this 15-year-old young man, who now needs to find a rabbi to disciple him, this young man, this student, would ask himself, which rabbi do I want to be like? And being a disciple now at this point was nothing like being a student. It was no longer just about memorizing scripture or interpreting texts any longer. It was now about becoming like someone who had smicha. And this young man would have had a drive within him to become like a rabbi who had authority that was passed on down from generation to generation, all the way from Moses. And this was something that consumed this young man at this point. A disciple desperately wanted to be like his rabbi. And so this young man, this possibly 15-year-old young man, he would approach a rabbi that he had chosen. Perhaps this rabbi was a really good teacher Perhaps this rabbi showed really compassion in a way that was so moving that it would influence and infect others. Perhaps this rabbi's ability to communicate truth was a way that no other rabbi had. And so he chose this rabbi and he would then start to hang around him. He just spent time in his presence. And at some point in time, when he had gathered up enough courage, he would walk up to the rabbi and wait. And the rabbi knew what was going on, but the rabbi in most cases would ignore the boy and make him listen for a while, like six months or something. And so after some time passes, the rabbi would acknowledge the boy and the boy would say, Rabbi, you are a wise and a gracious man. Your reputation precedes you. I have a question. May I follow you? Now on the surface of it, this question seems quite innocent, but it's actually a very loaded question. What the prospective disciple is actually asking is, Rabbi, do you think that I could be like you? Do you think that God has given me the gifts to be a man of God like you? Now, from history, we understand that the rabbis were humble men. And so from what we know, they would probably answer something like, I am honored and blessed that you would ask. I have heard of you. And it's a wonderful thing that you want to seek to follow God. And if I can help you, I'd love to be your rabbi. And then the rabbi would say, So recite Leviticus. Or he may say something like, Tell me the 17 phrases that the prophet Amos reiterates from the book of Numbers. Or he may say something like, recite for me the third quarter of the book of Deuteronomy. And then the rabbi, after having had this exchange with this young man, he would have the mandate to say, yes, Now, all of this is very interesting. But what does it mean for us now? In Mark chapter 12, in Mark chapter 1, sorry, verses 16 to 18, Jesus calls his first disciples. And this is what, how Mark records it. He says, as Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. Now, what strikes me firstly is that Simon and Andrew were probably not very wealthy. Um, Why were they fishing from the shore? instead of taking a boat out to deeper water, but also by virtue of Simon and Andrew being there where they were, it meant that they had long since been cut from the process of one day possibly becoming disciples to a great rabbi. And so they were not great students. Yet, Jesus calls them. Living at a time and in a community where God and religion played such a pivotal role in people's lives, can you imagine what it meant to Simon and to Andrew to be told by this great teacher, who at this point must have built up for himself a substantial reputation in the area, follow me. And their response is evident They dropped their nets immediately and followed him. And what we can learn from this, in the context of what we've heard, I think, is that Jesus didn't ask them to recite portions of Scripture. Nor did he expect them to have gone through all of the refining stages of their learning process neither did he expect them to come to him and ask him if they could be his disciples. Jesus turns the tables. And Jesus made a very loaded proclamation about Simon and Andrew and the other disciples who he calls later on. And by extension, about us here Today, Jesus was saying then and he's saying now today, I believe you can be like me. So, follow me. Finally, there's this issue about smicha. Jesus left people perplexed by the authority that he showed And according to their tradition, they assumed, people who watched Jesus minister, they assumed that the smicha that Jesus had had been passed on by men from rabbi to rabbi to rabbi. But the authority that Jesus had is an authority that came directly from God. And the people who saw him minister and love people, and show compassion to people, recognize that there was something special, and something different, about this man. The priests and the elders wanted to know from Jesus, who has given you this smicha, this authority? This authority within the Jewish context, was a very big deal, and is revealed on a number of occasions in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 7 there, we read, When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Jesus entered in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. And said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? This authority that Jesus had came straight from God. And so here we are. And it's the year 2020. And we are not in the Galilee. We are in Pineland. And I, as I reflect on all of this, I am so joyful that God, by His sovereign grace, has decided to pass His authority, His smicha, onto us. And I am so grateful that He has decided to see us as people who would be worthy to proclaim the gospel of His good news. And that He would allow us to call all men. That He would allow us to be instruments that He could work through to minister to. And now that we are His disciples, He has passed this on to us. By the power of His Holy Spirit. And so as we close, let me ask you. How badly do you want to be like your rabbi, Jesus? Are you consumed by it? How badly do you want to walk as Jesus walked? John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, which was our opening. This is how we know we are in Him. Whoever claims to live in Him must live as Jesus did.